This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. You know that night last November... 2016, that night when it felt like the earth had shifted under your feet. That night, Nona was working. She's an editor for an online magazine. And for her, going to a guy's apartment for sex that night, it wasn't her plan. I know I was wearing some really dirty jeans and not cute underwear. I don't remember what I was wearing on the top, but it was not the type of outfit I would feel sexy in. My hair was greasy, I had no makeup on, and I had this impending sense of dread, just like everybody else. And then, around midnight, it was clear that the piece she was going to be writing was about Donald Trump winning the election. So I had to write something along the lines of, never underestimate how much America hates women. So while she was writing about the unfathomable depths of misogyny in America, her cell phone was blowing up. This entire time, I was getting texts from every which way, not only from my friends, but from all levels of romantic partners. I was talking to a guy who I'd never even met from an app. From Bumble. Who suggested end-of-the-world sex. Now, I personally, I don't think I've ever had end-of-the-world sex. But I end up talking about it on dates a lot. I like to ask a guy... How did you spend election night? And sometimes they'll give me a proud look and say, you know, there was this girl I was seeing, we had end of the world sex. And then I have so many questions like, should I try that? Is it, is it good? I think it's just having sex with abandon, like it's your last day on earth, with no sense of the consequences, physical or emotional. The Bumble guy, she'd never met him. They'd never even gone on a first date. At 10.45 p.m., he texts me, Well, this is not great. And then I said, I'm at my office and every single person here needs a Xanax. And then he said, I thought it might be close, so I opted out of a party and IDK if that was a good idea or not. Now I'm not in a good mood right now. And I said, You're alone? No! Yeah. LMK, if you want to swing by and have some crazy end-of-the-world sex, because, yeah, society is crumbling. This is YOY. I'm Andrea Salenzi. And my guest today, Nona Willis-Aronowitz, she's a writer for Splinter. It's a website we used to call Fusion. And after Election Day, she started a newsletter called Fucking Through the Apocalypse. We're going to be talking today about what happened in our bedrooms and in our dating lives since last November, starting with the sex she had that night. This person was my rebound from this eight and a half year relationship, and it was extremely dramatic on and off and off and on. And that Halloween, he'd actually 
sort of broken it off with me in a very dramatic fashion. But we were just texting, texting, texting all night. And finally, at 2.30 a.m., when it was decided, we had a phone call right there in the office. I was talking to this guy. I just knew I was going to go see him. And after half an hour of talking, I kind of said, like, Ugh, I don't want to go home. It's so far. Hint, hint. And he told me to come over. And I remember this so distinctly. He lives in Bushwick. Or he lived. Who knows what he's doing now? Um, Wait, and that was closer to your office? Okay. Not really. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's be real. It was It was the lamest... <laughs> it was the lamest attempt. And I didn't even know if we were going to actually fuck because, again, I looked not my best. I didn't feel horny at all. I just wanted somebody to hold me. You know what I mean? And I also there was something in the back of my mind that thought this might be when he's vulnerable. Like I was feeling very heartbroken over the whole thing and wanted to hold on to some vestige of it. So I was sort of like, well, no one can deny you on election night, <laughs> you know? Did part of you think this is the the turning point for us? This is what's going to bring us together and... Absolutely. Here comes everlasting love. <laughs> totally. Totally, totally, totally. We're going to have this bonding moment and it's really going to be a thing. And no matter what, I knew that both of us would remember it forever because everyone's going to remember where they were on November 9th, 2016. So I got there and I'll never forget this. He lived, well, he lives in this extremely bachelor apartment. He's younger than me. He's, you know, doesn't have a shit together. And cool, cool. <laughs> younger. <laughs> so fuck boy, I show got. <laughs> and I got there and somebody outside the window was just wailing like crying, just losing it. And both of us couldn't stop listening. Like we were trying to have a conversation and we couldn't stop listening to this woman. It was his neighbor. He knew who it was. And it was just so upsetting and so haunting. And we went to bed kind of gradually. Like it wasn't like it wasn't immediately like a fuck fest. But it was one of those I felt like I was in high school. It was like, okay, I guess we're going to sleep. Like, can I borrow a shirt? Like, here I am in my little boy shorts, you know, feeling a little awkward. This I find I found this guy like so attractive. So I was just like in the bed with him, la di da. And then all of a sudden, we just had very sort of romantic, intense sex. I really felt like it was more like cuddle fucking rather than crazy sex. It was very much as my friend put it hold me with your penis sex um <laughs> which it takes a while to get there with a person <laughs> yeah well we hadn't even been together for or we we were never really together officially but we hadn't been hooking up for that long but it was a very intense relationship this was confusing but and i, I clearly i got like 2 hours of sleep you know and then i showed up at work with his shirt on and then ended up doing a video after like one hour of sleep. And whenever I see this video, it's like I'm wearing this guy's shirt, <laughs> you know, looking like insane <laughs> because I have gotten one hour of sleep. Donald Trump is about to be our president. And I can't help but think, wow, America really hates women. On one hand, I was really happy to be with this person. I was really happy to be with somebody 
it just feels good to get your mind off of it for a second and then simultaneously feel physically connected to someone. That said, I remember it being not that great because but maybe both of us were in our own heads and it was kind of quick and kind of uh, caveman-ish, you know what I mean? Um, it was very primordial. It was kind of just lots of <laughs> lots of you know, grunting and kissing and stuff, but it wasn't, you know, world's best sex. Also, it was unprotected, which I feel like was a result of our heads being elsewhere. And right. You didn't want to think about the future. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was just very impulsive. And often impulsive sex can be in theory hot, but in practice, not great. I had a lot of different thoughts about this. Like after election night, like, I couldn't, uh, God, I'm so embarrassed my audience here. Um, like, I couldn't come for a long time. I think a lot of people had that reaction. Um, I read a couple of things along those lines. For me, I think it was the opposite. I was really seeking escape. I was seeking some peace of mind just for a second, you know? It felt like the most the craziest personal thing was happening at the same time as the craziest national and global thing was happening. So I guess I had the opposite reaction. So all this year, I've been talking to listeners about how the election has impacted their dating lives. And there were a lot of similar experiences, and I'm just going to break them down into four distinct categories of post-election dating experiences. Number one, it changed who we're willing to date. One of our listeners, who happens to be named Hillary, was having a casual relationship with this guy. And shortly after a hookup, like immediately after they were done having sex, he decided to initiate a strange kind of pillow talk. He literally, he literally was just like, so what do you think about, you know, like Hillary and her emails? <laughs> and then I was like, what? And then we just got into this whole debate, you know, I was like, I, you know, I think they're really reaching, like they haven't found anything. Like, obviously, you know, there are big issues with it, but, you know, like nothing indictable. So let's move the fuck on like that, you know. But then he started he just kept pushing it and was like, well, no, I think it's like it's a real sign. She's hiding. She's definitely hiding something. Blah, 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 blah. That is my least favorite conversation in the world because there's no you're never going to change either person's mind. And it's just such a non not going anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. And I was like, oh, great. You channeled some Bernie Sanders and you're like, can we please stop talking about her damn emails? Exactly. And then I was like, "Okay, yep. I was already like. Like already for weeks, I was like, this has got to just stop. One of our listeners works as an engineer for the Navy. And one night she was on a date with a guy who looked a lot like her. They both had blue eyes and blonde hair. So we get to this bar, we meet, we're chatting. And he says, you know, our kids would be really great because I have blue eyes and blonde hair. And, uh, you know, I, I would be like proud for them to have this blue-eyed, blonde hair, Aryan worldview. And I was like, 
a little taken aback that he was talking about kids on a first date too. But like, you know, everybody's a little bit awkward on first dates. So he goes on, he, he, I ignore it. We go on and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about going to, uh, this rally, you know, next weekend or whatever. And it was, it was not a white supremacist rally. It was a Trump rally. Uh, so it wasn't like he was uh, the difference. Him. The difference is what? The, now there is none. <laughs> so then I was like, oh, you you voted for Trump. You're a Trump supporter. And he was like, yeah, I just really think he's going to do great things for the economy. Like he's so good at making deals. And I am from New Jersey. So we in New Jersey know that he is not. He bankrupted Atlantic City. But this guy was like, he's yeah, he's an expert at like making deals. And I actually have his book like right next to my bed. And so I was like, okay, I'm definitely not going to go see that. And now here's trend number two. Shortly after the election, a lot of our listeners heard from their exes. This includes Sarah in Northern California. On election night, she heard from an ex-husband who she does not talk to. And he sends me this text and says, that says something like, for all of our problems and complications, can we agree that this is a nightmare? And I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, of course this is a nightmare. But I don't want to talk to you about it. You know, we got together when we met when we were 18. We got to get, you know, the first presidential election was the year we got, we became an official couple. Um, it was, you know, that, that was the 2000 election where you stayed up all night, um, Gore Bush. And um, we spent every presidential election since then together. And this was the first one we had been apart. And so I think it was probably another one of these things of him feeling probably drinking too much, as most of us were, and feeling nostalgic and feeling sad and not really knowing. I mean, I, I'm putting this on him. I don't know if he didn't know where to turn or if it was just another sort of weird, half-hearted attempt to reach out to me. I don't, I mean, I don't know you guys, but I feel like it felt like the world was ending that night. Yeah. Like people were going to die uh, and people will die. And it really just felt like the world I thought I knew I don't live in anymore. It just felt as close to finding out that a comet was heading to the planet as we get. Yeah. And I feel like in that scenario, if the world was about to end, Craig wants to make things right with you. That's the best explanation I've heard for that, honestly. Um, I hadn't thought about that before. But that's a really good way of thinking about it, because it really did feel like the ground was shifting beneath our feet and nothing is stable anymore. We heard a similar story from Shaughnessy in New York. She hadn't been talking to her ex either. They actually used to fight a lot during the Democratic primaries. He was her Bernie beau and she was his Hillary girl. And he would tell her really hurtful stuff like that he didn't want to think too hard about her support for Hillary because then he wouldn't like her anymore. A weird theme of our relationship was that I was considering buying the Hillary Clinton cross-stitch pillow that says a woman's place is in the White House. And... He, you know, had opinions on that. And I would ask him, like, how soon can I buy the Hillary Clinton cross-stitch pillow? And he said, never. And I sort of asked him again a couple months later. This was sort of right before we broke up. And he said, long after we've broken up. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. After election night, he sent her an apology email. Said that he was always going to fight to protect her rights. It's also weird that Hillary Clinton sort of gave me a lot of closure in my breakup, kind of, because I did need that apology to be able to sort of 
put this to rest and not be really angry about it all the time. And here is trend number three. A lot of you heard from exes who were just checking to see if you were vulnerable. Like our listener Way in Brooklyn, she got an email from a guy who clearly knew that she'd blocked him over text. This guy had actually once spray-painted her name on a bridge just to get her attention. And then shortly after the election, he sends her an email. And then the last line is, I don't want to add more stress by contacting you. I just wanted to tell you I care about you and how you're dealing with it all. Which okay. isn't even a sentence. Right. <laughs> if you don't want to add more stress, print out the email before you send it. Rip it into pieces and throw it into a river, but don't send it to me. It's like filler text, right? All it is is it's like it's like poking me when he knows I'm down because maybe I'm going to feel insecure enough to be like, yeah, come get in my bed. Here's our last type of story that you guys wrote in with. Post-election dating experience category number four. Some couples just broke up on election night. We spoke with Emily, who lives in D.C. She and her boyfriend had watched the election results at a bar, and then they went back to her place. And he was just standing there. And like, he never sat down. We have two couches. He like never sat down. And I just looked at him, and I was like, are you going to sit? And meanwhile, like, let's put this in perspective. He had had several beers. I had had, like, one or two over several hours. But he was, like, definitely feeling the alcohol a little more than me. And he just turned and looked at me and said, I don't think we're getting married. What? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the so, wait, so Donald Trump is your new president and your boyfriend of three years is like, I don't think we're getting married. <laughs> yeah, um, it kind of sounds like something you would like see on a sitcom, but it was just in that moment, like, so ridiculous and so many things. And I was like, okay. And I just, like, stared at him and stared at the TV and was like, what is going on? Uh, which which was more upsetting to you? You know, honestly, <laughs> I don't know. I probably the relationship, but, I mean, it's all just, like, not a great situation. One of my friends had commented on, like, the aftermath. So we went into work the next day, and our boss was trying to, like, really hype us up. She was like, guys, it's going to be okay. Let's all think of something positive. And she was cracking jokes about, like, her one positive thing being uh, buying stock and, like, hardware for building a wall or something and, like, getting rich from it. That was her joke. (laughs) Hilarious. I I was like, I have nothing positive. I just got broken up with, too. And everyone just kind of stared at me. And they were like, why aren't you, like, why aren't you at home? Why are you here? Why aren't you bawling? And one of my friends was like, you know, I think that there's, like, this threshold of pain and that the door is only so big and can only let so much in at once before you're just, like, overwhelmed. And I think she was kind of right. Like, I was numb, I would say, for weeks afterwards. Like, I just, I, it was just like, I couldn't talk. I mean, I could talk about it, but, like, I wasn't emotional. I wasn't anything. I was just, like so numb to all of it. So I asked Nona what she thought. Why did all of our past lovers and friends come out of the woodwork that night? Why did Emily's boyfriend decide to break up with her right there and then? It flouted everybody's expectations so much that for me, it made my mind run wild what other crazy ass things could happen. And you started to 
challenge common wisdom in general. You were just sort of like, well, what do I know? If Trump can become president, what do I even know? Maybe there's another moon. I don't know. Yeah. So maybe they're lizard people. Yeah. So if the possibilities are endless, you want to kind of reach for somebody who makes you feel loved, comforted, sexy. You want to go into a cocoon under the covers and just fuck someone. I mean, really, it's so elemental. Or if you're like me, you just turn down sex to cry and hold your dog closer. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, I'm going to speak more with Nona and one of our listeners about another phenomenon that struck our dating lives in 2016. He's in a feminist t-shirt and a pink pussy hat. What could go wrong? You were out on a date with a self-proclaimed woke guy. We'll tell you what happens next after the break. And we're back with Nona Willis-Aronowitz talking about this year of dating after Trump. And something she wrote about this year is the phenomenon of the woke misogynist. The guys who claim to be feminists, claim to be woke, claim to have all the best intentions and, in fact, really tout those intentions. And, you know, they went to the Women's March and wore one of those pink pussy hats. But then they'll turn around and sexually assault you or talk down to you or interrupt you or abuse you or troll you or do all kinds of things that you would never think a feminist would do. I just remember, like, here at YY headquarters, we just were so excited to share it. I feel like we almost stood up and plotted. Like, you just grabbed this thing that we all started noticing. There was an SNL skit almost exactly about this. Hey, can I ask you a question since we both love Hillary? Yeah, sure. Would you want to look at my balls? Ew, no. Bitch. What? Bitch. What? Please. No. But it's not fair. Why did the woke misogynist kind of emerge from the forest after Trump? Well, I think the same vulnerability that we're talking about on election night might unconsciously be a motivator for a woke misogynist. Like women are feeling really repelled by people who are more openly conservative or who are more openly like against their rights on a political level. So I don't think every guy is this calculating. And again, I think it's maybe subconscious, but I think a lot of people realize that that will particularly appeal to women at this time, or at least progressive women. It sucks because it's like we're in this moment where dating is hard enough, and I feel like it got harder. So as severely less comfortable as I am with Republicans, I'm that much less comfortable with moderates. And I'm also no longer comfortable with politically apathetic dates. Oh, yeah, I know. I think politically apathetic is is, is almost as bad because you're super complicit and you're sort of exposing your privilege of feeling like, oh, well, this doesn't affect me, so I'll just stay out of it. That's really unattractive to me. And not that every, the, yeah. Not, and then on the other end, we have the woke misogynist. So there's this very narrow plane of guys who I'd even consider having sex with. I think a good barometer is just seeing how they act rather than seeing what they say. Because they can say anything, but they sort of have to prove it with their actions. And the people who are saying that they're feminists the loudest, you should definitely treat as suspect. Because why are they why are they trying to get a cookie from you? Like they should just be living feminism in their daily lives. Once you've been around the block, you can really tell the difference. Like I, I just at this point, like the one thing that I did different in my 
swiping life is I would certainly swipe left on any guy who put feminist in their profile. Like, I'm sorry, if you're a feminist, you don't need to put it in your fucking profile. I don't put feminist in my profile. You know? Right. At the same time, isn't he trying to let us know that he's safe? Yeah, it's know. just like you can you can telegraph that in different ways. Yeah. But I also have a problem with guys who refuse to admit being a feminist to me if I ask them directly. Like, do you consider yourself a feminist? And if they're like, I don't know if that word's for me, it's to me that means just Google it. It's for you. It just means you believe in the equality of you and me. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think that's a little different if you ask. But I don't know. Think about like white people like advertising how unracist they are. Like, I mean, why would you necessarily do that? Just don't be racist. And also, you know, show solidarity with people of color. But like, don't, I mean, I just feel like anybody who goes out of their way to show how progressive they are is a little sus, a little sus. And we actually have a story from one of our listeners about one of these guys who are a little suspect. Cami is a 26-year-old African-American woman in San Francisco. The kinds of guys that I was going on dates with were specifically the white guys that I've been going on dates with work really hard through like signifying in their profiles and in our first couple of conversations to communicate like, I am woke, I am not racist. And that has been true all along since I've been dating in San Francisco, but definitely post Trump. I think I've noticed a lot more like explicit things in profiles, like men who were at the women's March and took pictures there and want to make sure that I know that. And men who like are straight up like voted for Hillary or like was a Bernie bro. They just communicate these things really, really, really clearly, really early on, which I mean, I guess is helpful. She doesn't sound sure because sometimes those signals can lead you astray. Like this guy. Guess what book was in his profile? He had a picture on a boat. He had a picture where he was golfing. And for me, those are like left swipey. Like if you're wearing a polo shirt, we're probably not going to be compatible long term. But he put that he had read Between the World and Me and was really interested in equity and justice. He wrote also that he was an entrepreneur, which is usually a left swipe. But he said that he was taking time off of working to write a book. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm curious. I'm intrigued. Like, I have questions. And the only way to answer them is to meet this person in public. And so I did. They met at a coffee slash wine bar. And he showed up in a polo shirt and boat shoes. And he was like describing all of the different wines in kind of like pretentious ways. But then he had like accidentally bumped the woman next to him. And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I know that white men are really bad at being conscious of how they're taking up space. And I'm so sorry that I like wasn't being more conscious. And I was like, I'm, I'm confused. Like, that's a weird thing to say out loud, even though I'm I guess, glad that you have this awareness. Like, would you have said this out loud if I weren't standing here? And then he went right back to, like, mansplaining the wine list to me. So I was just very, very thrown off from the very beginning. Did he seem into you? He definitely did. But that was also really, I couldn't tell if it was like he was into me or he was into the idea of me and so I kind of tried to ask I have a few trap questions that I like to ask um, or things that I like to try to feel out like I like to know if I'm the first black woman that a guy has like been on a date with or has dated and so I asked him that and he uh, launched into like a lengthy explanation of how he's been on dates with many African-American women and also women who are 
like African immigrants and the differences that he perceives between those communities and the tension that he perceives between black Americans and Africans. And he was asking me for my perspective on that. And I was like, well, okay, that's not the answer that makes me feel better. Wow. But he definitely, he was trying really hard. He uh, like asked to hold my hand multiple times after I said no each time, which was weird. He like asked if we could dance, but it's like a quiet wine bar on a Wednesday and no one is dancing. So it was a, it was a lot of, <laughs> I think he was into me, but it was, he was not picking up on any of the signals that I was sending. What, what happened next? I really, I can't. <laughs> Yeah, so this was kind of the transition into him bringing up the election. And so he was talking about, like, the tension between Black Americans and African Americans and, like, the other women he's dated. And he was saying that, like, it's really, like, the politics of being Black in America are really complex. Thank you. I'm aware. And then he was like, yeah, I'm, like, thinking about that. And the election has been really hard. Um, And so he asked me what I was doing that night. And so I kind of gave him the very basic, this is where I was. And then I was moving into the part where I talked about how the hardest thing for me on election night was thinking about what I was going to tell my students, because I work at a school in San Jose that's like a very high immigrant population. Almost all of the students are on free or reduced lunch. Um, A lot of them are first or second generation immigrants. Um, So issues of like immigration and documentation are really, really prevalent in my school. And I I, I teach American history. So I was just thinking about like, how am I going to stand up in front of these children who the system has completely failed in many ways. And this is just another example when I, I have nothing to say. And so I was kind of trying to share with him my processing of that. And he interrupted me for like the sixth or seventh time that date, which is always a big red flag. But that's when he was sharing like, yeah, I went home from work early. I just needed a place to cry. And I just like kind of cried a lot and let it all out. And then I felt really compelled to write a letter to my future children. And I think at this point I like put my drink down and (laughs) he like didn't stop. And in no way did he notice the change in body language from like passively listening to like what is about to happen. And I mean, already like writing a letter to your future children is a, is a strange thing to do. I don't know. I don't get it. I journal, but I would just, it would never occur to me. But he was like, yeah, I was like, I was thinking about what I wanted to say to them. And I really wanted to make sure that they understood that I was sorry that I had let this happen because I felt like there's more I could have done. I really wanted them to know that I was thinking about them at this really important time in my life and also like in history. And since my future children are probably going to be biracial, they're probably going to be half black. I just wanted to make sure that they knew that I understood the consequences that this would have for their lives and their existence and that I was going to, I was committed to them, but I was going to like do everything I could to like fight back and resist. And then I don't think I talked for like 45 seconds because I just didn't know. I don't know how you follow that up. Cause what is that telling you? When he says my children will be half black, what does that tell you in, tr- in the context of dating? Yeah, I think it tells me that I need to create a new category for white men who date black women and that it's like there's like a category of white men who are hunting for black wives and I don't know it didn't feel like I was being exoticized and it didn't feel like he was looking for an accessory it just really seemed like for him part of how he grows in his activism and in his his commitment to justice is by 
getting as close to blackness and black people as possible, which means marrying a black person and raising half black children. The idea that this is a goal that you seem to have, that like I want to be in an interracial relationship, that just feels inherently objectifying. Yeah, I had to make a new category. This year, Nona started a newsletter. It's called Fucking Through the Apocalypse. And there's actually a link to subscribe in our show notes. It's just at tinyletter.com slash Nona. And in it, you can hear about her sex life and some article recommendations. And it made me think what some of you guys might be thinking. Why do we feel compelled to talk about Trump in our work? Why aren't I just doing a dating podcast? Why isn't she just writing about sex? There is a feeling of... And this is I've noticed this as an editor, too, of everything sort of has to be political. So sort of apolitical sex writing has fallen out of favor. But in my opinion, most sex writing is not apolitical, um, even if you try to make it apolitical. I was actually worried when I started this newsletter that people would be like, how can you think of sex at a time like this? Sort of in the global sense. But nobody has. And I think secretly a lot of people are thinking about how how their sex and love lives have been affected by this time. It's not fun and games anymore. (laughs) And it never really was. So more sex or less? (laughs) What should should 2018 bring? I always say more sex. You know, we need to come together as a community. We need to know our neighbors. More connection, not less. That's what I say. I would never advocate for less sex. (laughs) It's not a zero-sum game. I mean, I don't want it to get in the way of people's marching, though, <laughs> and protesting. And yeah, like... I know. Well, I don't think this has to do with sex. <laughs> no, no, no. I know what you mean. I don't think this has to do with sex so much as love. I mean, I actually think love is a bigger distraction. Romantic love, like personal romantic love. Because you, you can be fucking all over town and really compartmentalize that as an activist. But if you're in love, sometimes that does make you slightly more apolitical because... You're kind of like, nothing else matters but this person. I actually have recently been having this experience where I sort of had, I like fell in love recently and it does make it feel better in a time of tumult. But it it also, there's, I always sort of have this nagging feeling of don't forget about bigger issues. Like it's not just about you and this person, you know? So you're like blissed out and staring out the window. (laughs) In some ways, I mean, I've I've resisted that. I mean, my day job demands that I stay engaged in these issues, but I certainly understand the impulse to just melt into this love cloud. You know, it feels good. Well, at least it can help you understand the opioid crisis, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a drug for sure. Nona Willis Aronowitz in love. We're gonna be right back after a break. And now it's time for another blind Skype date. Meet Kevin and Sanaya. Yeah, Sanaya. So, Sanaya. Yeah, I know it's spelled like Sinai, like the mountain. Or like the, uh, like the drug. That's Sinai. Never mind. Right. I I definitely was called that in school. Yes, he just accidentally made the joke about her name that she is most sick of hearing. 
These lovebirds are 22 years old. He's an architecture grad student, and she works in social media. And this date began the way most of them do. Lots of easy questions with easy answers. But then, true to his cyanide comment, this date is about to take a dark twist. We're going to focus in on the one question that our team at YY found especially revealing. Um, of all the people in your family, whose death would you find most disturbing and why? I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I already get like super morbid really fast. I don't think anyone in my family would like die a disturbing death. It would probably be like the same old, same old. If anything, it could probably be me who like dies the most disturbing death because I'm out here in the city. Well, you, you don't have like any younger siblings or? I have a lot of younger cousins who I definitely like wouldn't want to die. I mean, you don't want anyone to die, hopefully. Yeah. Well, <laughs> everyone has to die. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. You're right. But I, I'd rather like prolong that as long as I can. That's a scary thought, though, when you're like, what if what, what determines you being dead, like your body being dead or like your brain being dead? Or I mean, if you want to like talk like a scientific way, there are a lot of different ways to count it. Like, so you're like brain dead. Not scientific at all. Complete meta. Let's go <laughs> uh, complete figurative, no literal talk. So like spiritual? Yeah, sure. That's a better word. Like, because some people's spirits are already dead. Oh, I mean, there are some people who I think are dead inside. Yes, that's what I meant to say. But I think, I hear this a lot, like you, you don't actually die until the last time your name is mentioned on Earth. Oh, that's very positive. Right. Um, I don't know, like, how familiar you are with Hamilton, but, like, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And when you're gone, who remembers your name? It's like a pretty, pretty significant motif. And I think about that a lot. Like when you're gone, like what is your legacy going to be? And would you have made the world a better place than you found it? Damn, that's deep. I, I have to go back and do work. <laughs> I need to become the best architect I can be. Well, you ask deep questions, so. Yeah, I know. I good, good answers. Is this is this real life though? Uh, it's about as real as it gets, I think. Whoa. I mean, not that like I can prove that I'm I'm a real person through the computer. All right. So. Cool. Oh well. Oh well. Well, do you have any more questions? I have a lot of more questions. I don't know if I should ask all of them, but do you like sports? Yeah, at the end there, Kevin just started going rapid fire with the questions, and uh, Sanaya had to call it off. Well, I know you probably have more questions, but I have to go. Okay. But I would love to hear more if you want to. All right. Do we exchange numbers, or I have a pencil and paper. I can write down your number and put it in, and I'll text you or something. Okay. Yeah, I can just do that. So my number is... So they decide to meet up for lunch a few days later. They ordered quesadillas, and they ate them outside in a rose garden in Boston in November. It was cold. And then they browsed an art museum. Kevin says he could see them getting together again sometime in the future. But Sanaya told us she couldn't be herself around him, and that's what she's looking for.
Our show is produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Lindsay Cradwell. Our editor is Hillary Frank. Our artwork changes every week thanks to Teddy Blanks at Chips.NYC. And our theme music is by Andy Miklas, Casey Holford, Lee Rosefear, and Evan Viola. Special thanks to Mila Bell and Andy Bowers at Panoply. We have some exciting stuff coming up ahead. And I know I usually put a fake tease in here, but this is something from a real interview with a real future guest. So there is no the one. There is someone. A one. And often that A one is at a particular point in time in your life where you say, I'm ready to move from love stories to life stories. That's the enchanting voice of Esther Perel, the host of the podcast called Where Should We Begin? It's an audible original series that I cannot stop raving about. So get it where you get your podcasts, especially if you want to pregame our interview. Also, this guy. And what we found using a surprisingly large amount of data and some surprisingly complex maths is that beards look best on Fridays. No. Can you guess the data set that he's talking about? If so, send me a note on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at my full name, Andrea Salenzi. Beards get a 20% uplift on average in their rating on Fridays, and you gain an additional 5% at approximately 2 p.m.